Let's pray. Father, send your Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son to come write the truth of your word upon our hearts that we may not sin against you. Help us, Lord, as we turn to this difficult portion of your word and begin to wade into it that we might heed how we hear, that we might be humble before it. Lord, help me. If there is a hypocrite in the room, he stands and preaches but we are glad and grateful that it is you who are at work and not any man. So come, O Lord, search us and know our hearts. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there be any grievous way in us and lead us in the way everlasting for the sake of Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, one verse less than is recorded in your bulletin. Uh, Our text is Romans 2, verses 1 through 3. Hear God's word. Therefore you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Amen. So far the reading and hearing of God's holy word, may he add his blessing to it. I've been thinking about Romans a lot. Uh, Sorry, that's maybe seems like an obvious thing to say. Uh, you know, we're, we're wading into these deep things about sin. And we have been for a little while as we worked our way through the second half of chapter 1. And we'll be in it through chapter 2 and the beginning of chapter 3. And then we'll transition and start talking about the righteousness of God through faith and, and Abraham and the faith that he exercised and the peace that we have with God and And we'll talk about being dead to sin and alive to God and slaves to righteousness and on and on and on. And and it makes me realize that that each each sermon that we work our way through here in Romans is really zooming in on, on one part of the gospel. You know, the gospel is that we are sinners before a holy God justly deserving His condemnation and wrath. But God in grace and mercy has saved us by a Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ, by faith in Him and and he's brought us into new life of righteousness and godliness in which we will walk. And that's the gospel itself is really the outline of the book of Romans. That's what Paul is, is proclaiming to us is the whole gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if you share that sense that I have that we are talking an awful lot about sin, it's okay. Um, it's, it's, it's what he's doing on purpose. We're, we're going to get to points where we will spend an awful lot of time talking about faith and justification and sanctification and what it is to be a, a Christian in this world. We will spend lots of zoomed-in time on all of those things. But here at the beginning, we're zooming in on sin because Paul's thesis statement there back in the middle of chapter 1 is that the gospel saves those who would believe. 
Because in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And, and beginning there in 18, in the middle of chapter 1, Paul begins to lay out this proof of mankind's lack of righteousness. He's basically looking at us and saying, this gospel that provides salvation, you need it. Right? You have no righteousness of your own. He laid out in 18 through 23 of chapter 1 that everyone knows God. They know that He exists. They know things about Him. And yet so many have chosen, instead of worshiping Him, to go after idols in their own selves. They choose sin instead of the living God. And so then, beginning in 24 down to the end of chapter 1, God gave them up to impurity and to dishonorable passions and to a debased mind. And as a whole, it's a rather terrifying indictment of human sin, isn't it? It doesn't really end there. Paul continues it on here in chapter 2. But I'll remind you of what we've said as, as we think about sin still, that slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. That the gospel will never mean anything to us if we don't understand how desperate we are for it. Slight views of sin never lead to a fervent appreciation of grace. And, and what Paul does, we've seen it so much in the chapter 1, he leaves all of us without excuse before the Lord. No one has any excuse, no reason to take sin lightly. No, no legitimate uh, dismissal of it exists. And as he gets into to chapter 2, verse 1, Paul begins to turn his attention. He still has the same goal that he began in chapter 1, verse 18, to prove mankind's need of salvation. But now he narrows his audience a little bit. So, so we didn't make so much of this when we went through those verses at the end of chapter 1. But, but in chapter 1, he was dealing with a very broad category of humanity. That is, those who have rejected God and have nothing to do with Him. No mention of Him on their lips. No sign that they will ever bow the knee and praise Him, but at their judgment. Instead of uh, those blatant ungodly people who chose sin, and, and like 32 says, approved of sin, Paul now addresses those who have an outward appearance of morality. He's, he's addressing those people who, who may have, all the way through chapter 1, said, yes, yes, Paul, I, I know there are people like that out in the world, those people out there. Yes, I know about those people, and I agree with you that what they're doing is horrible. There may even be people that he's addressing now that got to the end of chapter 1, and, and didn't identify with any of the 21 vices that he listed for us. They think they're good. They, they have an appearance of morality and seeming godliness. Most commentators believe, and I, I tend to agree with them, that Paul is addressing the Jews in particular now at this point. We'll see it more clearly when we get further on into chapter 2. He, he, he directly speaks to them in verse 17. And if we take chapter 2 sort of as a whole together, it shows that even this beginning section is addressing them particularly, maybe without naming them here in verse 1, so that they will listen to him. And then after he's made his case, he'll call them out by name and point back to what he's been addressing 
so far, but that's for another time. He turns to the Jews. He turns to those religious people that may be reading this letter. And he says, you also, you have no excuse. It's, it's not your membership in the covenant of God that saves you. It's only the benefit of God's favor and mercy in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll let you in on the way that this comes down to you tonight. The, the moral appearance of the Jews means that they would have been very good southern people. Um, we sought in chapter 1 to, to find in ourselves those heart roots of sin that Paul lists there. But generally, you know, we look around at our church, we don't see so much of those things going on in any kind of blatant way. But what about hypocrisy? What about judgmentalism? What about censoriousness or self-deceit? I wonder, beloved, as Paul turns his attention to the outwardly moral, to, to the religious of his day, I wonder, will we not see ourselves here very clearly? It is never a kindness to conceal the truth. And we praise the Lord for Paul, who doesn't pull his punches when it comes to people like you and me. If there is a false hope among us Christians here in the Delta, it is certainly what Paul addresses here. May the Holy Spirit strip our hearts bare before the Word and stitch them up with the goodness of the Gospel that we may love God more and trust Him more. Look at verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Matthew Henry says that, that the Jews generally were a proud sort of people that looked with a great deal of scorn and contempt upon the poor Gentiles of the world. You know, that is not to say that the Jewish religion that's presented to us in the Old Testament, the one that was pointing forward to Christ, we'd call it the Christian religion just pre-incarnation not in its fullness. It's not to say, we're not, we're not trying to say that the Jewish religion was like this, was, was a, a, a religion of scorn and contempt. Uh, all over the Old Testament, is, is, it is clear that the gospel is for all people. It simply came to the Jews first. But sin infected that intention, and the Jews began to develop a very self-centered view of the world. They fancied themselves the blessed of God, right? That God, oh God, God chose us and, and left you outside. He doesn't like the world. He likes us instead. In their own minds, they had developed and, and inherited, if, if, as you will, a, a right to look down on the other peoples of the world because they had been brought into God's chosen people. And so the kinds of things listed back in the second half of chapter 1, we're, we're way far beneath them, 
You know, idolatry of images, never, ever. Homosexuality, covetousness, no. Murder, disobedience, foolishness, though. These are the sins of the world, Paul. Have nothing to do with us. But what does Paul tell them? You practice the very same things. Uh, to be fair, the language is probably more like you practice the same kinds of things, but the same nevertheless. We might imagine someone who publicly speaks out against those who refuse to worship the one true God, while he himself fails to give proper worship to the God that he claims to love. Or someone who openly condemns the sin of idol worship, but who inwardly loves himself much more than anything or anyone else in the world. Or someone who eagerly chastises homosexuality whenever he can get a public opportunity, but who conceals self-idolatry or selfishness or ingratitude or, or, or pornography addiction. It's the individual who trumpets God's righteous wrath against evil and envy and murder and deceit and disobedience and foolishness and heartlessness, but who still at the same time harbors gossip and slander and laziness and cold-heartedness. Do you see how verse 1 says that their own judgment condemns them? Their own judgment condemns of others speaks back against them. It's almost ridiculous, isn't it? That anyone at all would ever look at someone who's doing something similar to what they're doing and saying, what you're doing is wrong and feel good about it. It's a church member in Sunday school condemning the world for idolatry while harboring an ungodly love for money. It's, it's hypocrisy, right? It's, it's, a, it's the minister who preaches against sexual immorality and unbelievers and maybe even in the midst of his own congregation while secretly views pornography in his private time or is involved in some kind of extramarital affair. It's hypocrisy. Clearly, such judgment is, is heinous and inexcusable. Their own judgments turned back on themselves, whether that sin in the moment is known or not, still a judgment against themselves. But it's compounded even further. Uh, the pagans addressed in chapter 1 are those who are outside of the covenant of God. Very clearly pagan, ungodly, unbelieving people. I mean, so much so in verse 32, right? That they're proud of not knowing God. That they, they give approval to those who practice the list of things that has just been given. They've never seen the law of God. Those people at the end of chapter 1, they don't know what God has declared. They, they know that He is, right? Back in, chapter, uh, in, in verses 20 and 21 and 22. But they have not been blessed with His law the way the Jewish nation was. And this does not excuse them by any means. That's been made very clear. But how much more inexcusable are those who know God's law like the Jews, and yet still refuse to obey, even as they point the finger at those who join them in their disobedience. 
What is it that we tell our children? You know better. Our children know better, right? God's children, the covenant people Israel, those who know the word that He has given, even us today, beloved, we know better. This compounds our disobedience. It it compounds the wickedness and the inexcusability of what we have done. The moral religious Jews know better. And so their judgment against offensive pagans, while they commit the same things, compounds the inexcusability of their offense against God. And so that's why Paul says that in verse 1. You have no excuse, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you practice the very same things. What do you condemn and yet still practice? What is it in your heart? That, that may, maybe what it is is you condemn the outward action in anybody that you see committing it. But the heart roots of the same sin are buried deep in you. Sometimes it's much more obvious things, you know, that they really should raise their children better. You know, how did your kids turn out? Was it always easy for you? It's never easy for anyone, let's be clear. We should be careful. Well, they really should be at church more. When really you're just showing you're just showing up to check off a box on a list somewhere, not really there for the good reasons that we should be. They, those people, offend God by their sexual immorality while at the same time you have no control over your lustful gaze. This type of heart condemns itself. But verse 2 says that God also condemns. We know, Paul says, that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. He's doubling down, right? It's not just bad that you practice these things and and also condemn others who do the same. Paul says, God also condemns you. And, And if you're thinking about it, the question should arise in your mind, why is Paul making this point? You know, Isn't it obvious so far that God hates sin and will never condone it? Well, yes, certainly it's obvious. What's his point? Paul is aiming further down at the heart of of the outwardly moral person. He's taking a swing at their hypocritical motivations. Uh, What's the mindset of the judgmental individual? Well, on the one hand, they have an opinion of the one that they're judging. Those people are so wicked. They, they break God's law and they even encourage and approve of other people that do the same thing. How wicked they are. 
But on the other hand, the judgmental religious person also has an opinion about himself that is informing that judgmentalism, right? And what's that opinion? I'm so much better than those people. Yes, indeed, I may, maybe, maybe I'll do those same things that they do from time to time in smaller form factors. But I belong to the people of God. I go to church and I tithe and I even go to Sunday school and evening worship and I go to prayer meeting when it's around and and I'm such a good godly person. I have no fear of what God may do to me because I do all the right things even though I do several wrong things as well. Paul says, slow down a minute. It's verse 2. Slow down. Before you get ahead of yourself, Paul says, we know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Just because you're ethnically Jewish, he may say to them, it gives you no excuse for a practice or a lifestyle of sin. This, um, this sense of security that these judgmental Christians, or, or excuse me, Jews may have is a twisting of the promises of God, is it not? What are the promises that have been given? Well, you know, that God has chosen a people for his own possession. It's, it's the story of Exodus. And then he's brought them out of slavery and has led them into freedom to a land of promise and blessing. And that he will keep them and be their God and protect them and guide them and take care of them. He did it in the Old Testament in Exodus. He did, he did it with the remnant that was led into exile and then eventually brought back into the land. It's made so clear in the New Testament as well. Go read Ephesians chapter 1 where Paul there also writes about how God has chosen you to be a people for himself. And that he's worked it all out so that you might be blessed in Christ and that he might glorify himself in bringing you from death into life. Someone who loves sin will, will twist those promises to suggest that the Lord will overlook a lifestyle of sin because how could someone think that? How could you think that the Lord would overlook a lifestyle, a practice of sin? Matthew Henry talks about it like this. He says, while they practice sin and persist in that practice, they think to bribe the divine justice by protesting against sin and exclaiming loudly upon others that they are guilty as if preaching against sin would atone for their guilt of it. I have known and known of ministers who would eagerly from the pulpit condemn the sins of adultery and lust. And yet sometime later it would come out that in the very season they were preaching against those things, they were involved in some type of illicit affair or some kind of addiction to online images how is this? How, how can a minister of the gospel do something like this? Very often, 
outwardly moral people will publicly rail against the sins that they love so as to somehow ease their guilt and misdirect those who are watching them. Do you remember what God said to Samuel when he thought that Jesse's oldest would be the most appropriate for the throne? Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Verse 2 declares to those who would seek to cover their sins by their own secrecy. Verse 2 proclaims that God will see all things out in the end and that no sin will go unpunished. John Calvin writes it like this, God will punish sin without any respect of persons in whomsoever it will be found. And He will not heed outward appearances, nor be satisfied with any outward work, except what has proceeded from real sincerity of heart. It hence follows that the mask of feigned sanctity will not prevent him from visiting secret wickedness with judgment. Friends, be aware that secret things will be sought out and the hypocrisy of our lives will be laid bare before the King of kings and Lord of lords in the day of judgment. God will not abide a habit, a lifestyle, a practice of sin in his people. It's what John talks about in his first epistle. You know, it's, it's the verses that people get all twisted up about because it, it seems like John says that, that Christians don't sin. But that's not what John says. John says Christians don't have a lifestyle of sin. They don't have a practice of sin. That it's not the prime characteristic of their life. Well, why not? Because they're not dead anymore. (laughs) Because they're alive and are in glory with Christ already. And so sin does not characterize their life. And so we ought to take heed that God rightly judges those who practice, make a lifestyle, make a habit of sin. Because that very practice identifies you as someone outside of Christ. And judgment rightly should fall upon you for your transgression. And so verse 3. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? One author writes that that here Paul is pressing home verse 2 with remorseless logic. He writes, If you condemn the Gentiles for these sins, then how can you expect your privileged position to secure your immunity from God's judgment when you are practicing the same sins yourself? He's just, if he doubled down in verse 2, he's tripling down on verse 3. Do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God. You know, that question was written a long time ago for particular people. 
but it is for you today. The sin that you've committed may be the blatant idolatry of chapter 1. More likely, it may be the, the seeming moral judgmentalism of chapter 2. You know, whether, you're ju- whether you're, uh, your, your judgment is public condemnation or private reviling, wh- whether your sin is, is, is blatant and outward or, or if, if it's more inward heart issues, wh- whether your sin, uh, your transgressions, your iniquities are things from your past or offenses that you've committed while in union with Christ, do you suppose that you will escape the judgment of God? These opening chapters of Romans are jarring, abrasive, yes? These words may pick up a mood that is distasteful to you, but remember Paul's purpose. It is never a kindness to conceal the truth, and the truth is that we will all die in sin on our own. And because slight views of sin will not lead to an appreciation of grace, Paul seeks to leave us each without excuse before the true and living God. To one degree or another, we are all being addressed here in Romans chapter 2. And Calvin says that, that people of this class will, with astonishing security, trust in themselves except if their vain confidence be forcibly shaken from them. Do not trust yourself. Do not trust yourself. Friends, you all stand before the Lord as sinners and upon each of you should rightly fall the judgment of God. And here's a question for you as we get to the end. Do you agree with this? Yes, we're getting to Jesus. Some of you are thinking that maybe I should have hit him right there. No. Do you agree with the judgment of scriptures that you deserve the condemnation of God's wrath? Do you agree with this? Do you agree that God ought to condemn you? It is only there, in that place, that the gospel means anything. Because when you have reached the end of yourself and have recognized that you have no hope before a holy God in and of yourself, then, then Jesus means something. Then the Holy Spirit comes and is put to work as the Lord, and isn't the Lord bringing you to that point of emptiness and selflessness where you're recognizing your need of Christ? Yes, of course, he's at work in all of this. But then it is that we have nothing left to do but trust in Christ. And why should we trust in him? Because he was condemned for you. Yes. Because he suffered in your place. Trust that Jesus, the God-man, lived for your righteousness and died for your sins, that he satisfied before God all the judgment that rightly falls upon your hypocrisy and your sanctimoniousness. You trust in Christ, and the Lord 
teaches us in his word that all who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ are saved and set free from sin and death. But that's not the end of the gospel, is it? Now you are freed. Christian, you are free to go and live a life of godliness and comfort, free from guilt and free from condemnation. Tim was right when he said this morning, we too often live with an underlying sense of guilt. We're Presbyterians. We're not something else. We believe that our sin has been counted to Christ and that there is no more to be paid. Why should we live like we still owe something for our sin? God has called us to life and glory. Know that in Christ, Romans 8, 1, right? There is no condemnation for you. Live in the Spirit of God in freedom and righteousness and glory and praise God that He has judged our sin, but that for those in Christ it has not fallen on us, but on Him. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, for the sake of Your Son, send Your Holy Spirit to write the truth of Your Word upon our hearts that we may not sin against You. Lord, some of us in here are still trusting in our own confidence and and seeming morality and righteousness, would you shake us free from false confidence and remind us again of all that Christ has done for us. We are sorry for our sin. And we do not want to be hypocrites. Holy Spirit, fill us that we may live lives that are pleasing in your sight so that you may be happy to smile upon us, yes, in Christ, and yes, in our sanctification and growth in grace. Lead us on, O Lord, to that day when all will be made right. Keep eternity before us. Be blessed to do these things for the sake of your Son, in whose name.